We're walking through the Gospel of John. We arrive today at the first of what he calls signs. He calls miracles signs because for John, he uses them to point at who Jesus is. So Jesus did bunches and bunches of miracles. John himself says it. But he says, but the ones I've given you, these in this book are here so that you might know who Jesus is and that you might believe in him. So when, when John gives us a sign, and he gives seven in this book, when John gives a sign, he's very intentional that the, that the miracle would teach us about Jesus, about who he is and why he's here. And we should go into, when we're studying the signs in John, we should go into the study of, his word, of the word with that in mind. Which is especially true, I think, here in John 2, this is the first of seven, and it might be the most subtle. Uh, he's, Jesus is going to turn water into wine at a country folk wedding. That's what's happening. It, it's, uh, some might say it's unimpressive. It's certainly not glamorous. It's not a bold wonder like the raising of Lazarus or it's not, a, it's not the sort of miracle that you know, multitudes of people embrace like the feeding of the 5,000. Nor is it a miracle where there's a lot of distinct t- teaching or ministry that comes out of it like uh, the healing of the paralytic or something like that. It's, it's quaint. And sometimes that, that on first read that catches us as a little bit striking. We're going to look at this, uh, this sign sort of in two waves, the first half and the second half, and then we'll, we'll try to meditate a little bit as we go through. So let's go ahead and take a look. Verses 1 to 5 of John 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. All right. There's several problems here um, in most of these problems have to do with the fact that we're sitting in 2017 and this was written around zero in very different cultures. So, I mean, because you look here, uh, first of all, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Like you run out of wine. I mean, that has, I'm sure, happened at many a wedding. Uh, but there's some differences. In our, in our age, we're very free with the way we like to think of a wedding reception. We have a lot of liberty there. So it's really up to the families of the bride and groom whether they're going to have wine in the first place, whether they're going to have chicken or have it outside or have music. It's up to you. I mean, pick, pick whatever it is. Think about your own wedding or the weddings you've been to recently. It's the bride mostly and the groom occasionally commenting uh, 
on the periphery and saying, yes, dear. And that's how the reception happens. And it can be, and there's so many ways a person can get married. You could, you could go to Vegas and get married. You could have a string quartet in a big high cathedral and get married. We have so much liberty and freedom on this subject. You might say we're kind of a low culture, and I don't mean that in a debased way, but we don't have high forms that we aspire to, particularly on this subject. During this time, it's not quite the same. Even though this is a kind of a country town, in fact, we don't actually know where Cana is. We, we know there was a Cana, but it's such a nondescript area, we're not even sure where it is anymore. It's in the region of Galilee. But here are some humble families, but it does not mean that they don't have high structures and high cultural forms. And in this culture, there was a way you were supposed to do a wedding. And in that way, the groom's family was responsible for the festivities of the wedding. And the festivities of the wedding were a dignifying mark to the bride's family. So this, the groom's family through their good wedding nuptials, it was a way of saying to the bride's family, your bride is worthy and you're a good family. It was an affirmation and it was significant. So there are actually evidences of lawsuits during this period where the bride's family filed lawsuit against the groom's family for an insufficient festivities. Okay, so I'm not saying that this is all that right here, but just to give us a sense of running out of wine at this was probably more significant. There was probably an issue of honor and shame that we're not entirely familiar with taking place. That's the the first sort of speed bump in this reading. Here's the second, I think. Verse four, or so Mary says to her son, Jesus, we've run out of wine. And he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And when we see woman, it sounds abrupt. It sounds unwise. It may even sound chauvinistic. In fact, some of your Bibles may actually add a word there. They may add dear woman. Okay, the dear is not in the scripture. What they're doing is uh, they're, they're not trying to bail Jesus out. They're trying to bring to life that in this language and in their time, this was not a rude statement. The translators in those Bibles who say, dear woman, are trying to help you understand the meaning here, to hear it like they hear it. So it's an endearing term. It's a term of respect, ma'am, madam, my lady, I don't. We don't have as many of these that are comfortable for us anyway, but it's, it is a respectful, esteeming word. It is not mom. So that's what's interesting, actually. What's interesting is not that he says something abrasive to his mother, but that he doesn't call her mother. And this, in this story, in John's, you know, many years later, John's recalling this event. And as he's recalling this event in this story, he's making it clear to us that Jesus is not whatever, because he's going to end up making wine out of water. Jesus is not going to do this miracle because his mom told him to. Okay, the whole, we have 11 verses that are all theological. We're building a picture of Jesus. And I don't think John wants us to walk away from this story with these sorts of lessons. 
Mary exercises authority over her son. Or, the point of the story is to honor your mother and father. Jesus, in this story, is his own man. And that's what's taking place here. Is he saying to her, lady? In a nice way. I can't even, it doesn't even sound nice to say lady. What? Madam? My lady? What does this have to do with me? I mean, that's more of the question. Is, is the, the real question is, is Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? This is not my hour. And yet she, in turn, responds undeterred by saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And she walks away knowing he's going to do it. The text, when we look at the text, the text inclines us to think he's not going to do it. But she acts as though he is going to do it. And guess what? He does it. So what's, what's sort of taking place here? I think there's some help in both of these phrases. First of all, when he says, what does this have to do with me? What he's saying is, is this is not my problem. I'm not to blame that you ran out of wine. What, you know, I wasn't the one who drank it all. He didn't crash the wedding with him and the disciples. That's not what happened. He was a guest who was invited, and he's a guest. What does this have to do with me? Can you imagine being at a wedding reception, sitting way back at table 27, just enjoying, and somebody comes out of the kitchen and says to you, wait, we've run out of chicken. And you're thinking, well, oh, well, then I'll do the fish. No, I mean, like, can you make chicken? <laughs> you would say, like, well, what does this have to do with me? Like, I'm a guest. See my name card? I'm a guest. Jesus' mother is somehow entwined in the festivities. And there's, by the way, there's many, many theories from antiquity and from the tradition of the church as to whose wedding this is and what role is Mary playing. But you can imagine if this is a down-home country wedding and sort of a, a backwater town that she's like the aunt who's helping out, okay? She helped decorate the cake, all of those sorts of things. That's the sort of, I mean, that's just probably a safe place to, to see her is. It's not her direct family's wedding. She's either a close friend or a distant relative who's sort of of the groom's family wanting this to turn out well. And she knows Jesus. Okay, so in this, she seems to have a role, right? She's the one who turns to the servants and says, do whatever he asks you to do. She has that like line of authority, that sense of responsibility. He's guest. It's not his problem. And then he says, it's not my hour. In the Gospel of John, this conversation of hour, the hour of Jesus, is a continual theme. It, it shows up um, more than a few times in the Gospel. And the hour refers to the purpose of Jesus, his purpose. He speaks of his hour as the reason for which he came. And that reason is the cross. So early in the Gospels, Gospel uh, chapter 7, chapter 8, when people try to capture Jesus in those early chapters, it says, but it was not Jesus' hour and he escaped. Or, and he got away for the hour had not, his hour had not come. Later on, when his crucifixion is becoming imminent, he begins to say, my hour is coming, or this is my hour. I mean, here, here's one. I'll just read you one from John 12. 
And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, we know from last week, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of his death. He does this in John 12 and John 13. In John 17, as he's ending his priestly prayer, he says, my hour has come, Lord. May I glorify you and you and me. This is not his hour. What he's saying to this woman is, what does this have to, this is not my problem. Nor is this the reason for which I came. It's not my problem. And it's not my purpose. Theologically, let's, I want you to think of maybe the way we pray. Because actually the interaction between Mary and Jesus, you might even think of as a prayer. Okay, we, we pray to the Lord like this. I mean, she was petitioning our Lord directly. But I would like you to think just how often the things you may ask the Lord for that maybe he could respond with, this is neither my problem nor does it have to do with the reason for which I came. You know, I want a better job. I want to be in love. I wish I was living there. I wish my health was better. All the other ones in the middle. It's not Jesus' fault. He's not to blame. It's important. If we're going to ask the Lord well, it's important to ask the Lord well. Which means to walk into our prayers. Because by the end of the day, he's going to do it. Okay? So I'm not saying he doesn't care about you. I'm saying, how do we adopt the proper voice before our Lord? And the proper voice before our Lord is a growing sense of wisdom over what, over the things that are not his problem and have little to do with his reasons. We can still go to the Lord with these things. We can still ask for these things. But I think many of us know or have met somebody who has a cold place in their heart against the Lord because the Lord did not do something that they're convinced in their mind was his problem and was his reason for being here. And it's, it's this area that they're, they're bent. Why did Jesus come? Like, outside of that, it's a sense of care that we go to the Lord. I think, I wanted to say, and maybe earlier on, as we get to know the Lord better in our lives, I think we have a gaining sense of what is his problem and what isn't his problem. You know, as a kid, I'd ask the Lord for a bunk bed. I'd ask the Lord for, uh, my parents painted my room blue when we lived in Florida, and I was so happy. It was God gave me a blue room. Like, That's not right. I don't think it angered God. 
I think you probably grinned at it. But the better you get to know the Lord, you get a gaining sense of what's, why did he come? And, and what does he really care about? Going to the Lord with the right voice is, is really important. And Mary does, I think. There's the, Mary serves here, if we're going to call this sort of a prayerful example, this serves as a great example. I'm not saying this is the model. I'm not saying it's the how-to or anything like that. I'm saying this is a pretty good example because Mary goes to him the right sort of way. You notice she goes to him for someone else's problem. This is not her problem, at least not immediately. She's not asking for wine because she wants to open a liquor store or because she wants to drink more. She has on her heart the burden of someone else's situation. I'm not saying it always needs to be that way. I'm just, in my own mind, I'm contrasting it to how commonly I pray for myself. She happens to be going on someone else's behalf, right? She has plunged herself into a good thing and has mixed herself up with other people and is now going to the Lord on their behalf. And she goes, and when she comes to the Lord, she doesn't give him the answer, she gives him the problem. We're out of wine. Do whatever, they, do whatever he tells you to do, and she walks away. Right? She doesn't say, here's the answer that I need in like 10 minutes. This is the answer. She gives him the problem, and then she walks away in faith. That's a really good picture of just a solid voice of prayer from God's people that we would be caught up with other people doing good things, that we would lift up their situations to the Lord, that we just bring to the Lord a promise and that we would have the faith that if it, to walk away, like to be amen that's filled with faith. Well, that's what she does. And Jesus, Jesus answers. Jesus does it. And in all the books I've read on this subject, I can't get away from the simple answer as to why does Jesus do this, which is Jesus likes us. God calls us sons and daughters Jesus gives us the right to call him friend. He cares about you. He looks at you fondly. He wants us to have a full life. And so he does it. I wish I, I wish I could un, I wish I could know the whole mystery, the matrix behind how God, the wire diagram of God's yeses and nos. I can't. I don't think I ever will. I'm simply stand back at the idea that he loves me. And so when I care about something, even if it's not his problem and it's not his reason, there's some part of him, just like you and me, we care about what our sons and daughters care about. We care about what our friends care about. We care about what people we love care about. And those things spur us to action. Would not, if a close friend came to you and said, could you pick me up for work tomorrow because my car is broken down? Would not their prayer and petition to you move you to action? Is it, 
It's true it's not your problem, and it's certainly not why you're here. But it's an easy yes. And it forges greater relationship. I think something like that is in the heart of the Lord. But we're about to read. When he does answer this, when he does answer a prayer that's not his problem, that's not his reason, when he does, we should expect that he has the right to sort of weave into it some of his own glory. And I think this is why John is going to grab this example, is just how beautifully the Lord tells of himself in the way he answers this. So let's look. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunken freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let's stop there. There's a a detail in verse 6 that's worth noting, by the way. John writes... There were six stone water jars there. And then he clarifies them. He says, these are water water jars that the Jews used in their rites of purification. He has to do that in one sense because he's writing to a largely Greek audience, an audience like you and me, who don't know Jewish things that well. So already in the first chapter, he used the word rabbi, and then he stopped and he went, that means teacher. And he used the word Messiah, and he stopped and he said, that means Christ. This is another one of those. This is another of those translational moments where he's saying, the stone water jars that Jesus pointed them to, by the way, those were the customary stone water jars, big water jars, that Jewish families would fill with water and that they would use in their purification rites. He says that right up front. I think this is important because think for a second. Don't you think Jesus could have answered this prayer a different way? I've I've wondered, why didn't he say, bring me the empty pitchers that used to have the wine? Why not do that? Bring me the empty wine pitchers or the wine keg, or the wine barrel, or the wine sack. I think there are something like an infinite number of other ways that Jesus could have satisfied this, but he chose to reach over and grab the most religious pot he could find. Where is the only pot around here that is connected to Judaism in a deep way? Go grab all those and bring them here. I mean... He could have done this any way. He's turning water into wine. He could have done it any way he wanted. And he does that. 
these water, these, these large stone jars, by the way, and they were supposed to be stone and not pottery because of cleanliness. Right? So these jars, there's actually rules about these jars, what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to hold, what they're supposed to be made of. All these, these jars were part of the deep Jewish tradition, thousand years Jewish tradition of cleanliness. Judaism has a high, high view of clean and unclean. Read Leviticus. How I dress makes me clean or unclean. Who I talk to has an effect on that. What I eat has an effect on that. Where I walk and on what day I walk, what I do. My health, every day, every single day, I am asking questions. Am I clean or am I unclean? When I come in to eat, I have to wash my feet and wash my hands. In a high Orthodox Jewish home, how they wash their hands matters based upon what they're doing. Are their hands this way or are their hands this way? Does the water drip off their elbow or does the water make it to the wrist? High view of cleanliness. Every day. To come into this meal, they would have washed their feet and they would have washed their hands. They might have even washed their hands between courses of the meal. Meanwhile, at the temple of Yahweh, a priest every single day is sacrificing for them. Make us clean, Lord. Make us clean, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Every day it has to happen. Every single day a priest has to wake up and shed blood. Every day, make us clean. Make us clean. Make us clean. I'm always dirty. In my mind, there's the thought, how am I dirty today? How do I need to be clean, right? The better the Jew, the more serious this question. The more serious the one who embraces the, the faith of Yahweh, the more they're continually asking questions about their cleanliness and their uncleanliness. And Jesus says, grab those pots. Bring them over here. And he takes something that for their whole history of faith, has done nothing but clean the outside, right? Just washes the outside. And he changes it to something that goes inside, right? He changes. He repurposes. He doesn't shatter them. He doesn't angrily knock them over. He takes this notion of cleanliness. And he does this wonderful thing with it. Now it will fill them from the inside. And it will be the best, the best thing they have. It will flow in them. Not just apparently clean them on the outside. This is the Lord's table. This is precisely what you're doing today. Do we not come to the table and fill ourselves Remind ourselves, right? Jesus said, unless someone eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, they can have, he can have no part with me. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ is our cleanliness. He is our salvation. He is our sacrifice. He is our forgiveness. And we take it in in joy. We're filled with his spirit. Right? We're not frantic about are we, are we or are we not like clean? We live in the cleanliness of Christ Filled with his spirit. And that's the source from which righteousness comes. That's the source from which genuine good deeds come from. Is from the comfort within the righteousness of God.
This is why it's a sign. This is what makes it point to who he is. All right, one more verse. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I think it's a strange concept that the disciples believed in him. First of all, I thought they already believed in him. That's what makes you a disciple. So that's my first sort of, well, that's a little weird. Secondly, they're going to say this. The book is going to say this again and again and again throughout John. Jesus is going to do something and, he's going to, and the disciples believed in him. And I'm thinking, well, didn't they just say that? And it's going to happen like three or four times. They're, you're going to see people again believing in him. And then you have to put that with the notion that at the end of this book, after they've believed in him and then believed in him and then believed in him, they're going to deny him, run away in total confusion about him. And you're going to sit there and go, well, I thought they believed in him. I don't think belief is such a simple concept. I think belief is not a punctiliar thing that once you, ha- you either have it or you don't have it, and when you have it, you fully have it. You may have it, but it is a growing idea. It's a, it matures over your life. It's very much like love. You fall in love, and then you learn to love. And as you grow in love for anyone, whether it's friendship or or a husband and a wife, or in a family, you are learning across your life to truly love. And so something will happen, and you learn to love. And then you go through something together, and you come out more loving. It's belief and faith are like that. In fact, they're very much like that. You might even think, just as with love, the first expressions of love sometimes, which are the most wild and romantic, are also very often the least authentic. You know, I am now able to see in my life that the most radical feelings I've ever had about love was really self-love. I said I was loving her, but I was loving me all the while. And that the kind of, the pilot light blue flame of love that years of being together fosters is more real and does more good. Faith is that way. At eight years old, you can believe. And then you can go to college and once again believe. And then you can go through hardship and believe. And you can go through a good time and believe. And you can ask for something that's not his problem and is not his reason. And he can answer it because he loves you. And you believe. And you could ask for something and he could not answer it. And you learn to believe. That belief grows. Gross. What I actually think is worth remarking on here and probably is missed in our time is that they're disciples. They're already following. It's not as though their belief is sitting here and they're, you know, they have belief, but it's not being followed with active following. Actually, it's the opposite. Their commitment to following is already taking place despite the fact that their belief is so young. 
This table is for followers of the Lord. And I don't really think the Lord cares that much if your belief is this little or that big. Are you following in belief? That's it. If you're following in the belief, come be filled. Come be filled to the brim, it says. With the best, it says. Come be encouraged. You can put to bed. I mean, I, and I understand the daily desire, Lord, help me to be holy today. I understand that daily desire of returning to the Lord, but that is not going to define our walk. What God has done in us is what's first. I'm going to pray as we prepare for the table. This table is for those who are in the faith. If you are following the Lord in belief, I welcome you to it. If you're sitting outside or still questioning, you would just you would dignify our 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 ordinance here by letting the elements pass. Let me pray, Lord. We come to you now. Grateful that you have repurposed this covenant of old, this promise of old, which came from Abraham and worked through Moses and through the prophets, Lord. You have repurposed it. And we're rescued from the frantic work of being washed. Always washing, always cleaning, Lord. We are rescued from that now simply to receive what you offer, Lord. And so we pray this morning, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son, for his death and resurrection. We thank you that he shared his body with us, that he shed his blood for us, and we, we take it today to remember that you fill us up on the inside. And that you baptize us not just with water that cleanses, but with a Holy Spirit that infills and that gives life. And I pray, Lord, that we would be an enduring people of life. That in our own lives lived, people would look at us and they would feel like we are filled to the brim with good things. That's our ask, Lord. And we take time now to remember what you've done. Amen.